Hello. We've published a little bit later than usual this week to cover the BBC's review of social media guidelines, which were published on Thursday. The new rules will allow high-profile presenters to express their views on issues and policies, but they must stop short of political campaigning. These new guidelines are, of course, in response to the furor earlier in the year over Gary Lineker's post, in which the Match of the Day host wrote that the government's language about a new asylum policy was, and I quote, not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. Well, the former ITN boss, John Hardy, conducted the review and has said that the new rules would apply to presenters of flagship programmes outside news and current affairs, they will have a particular responsibility to respect the BBC's impartiality because of their profile on the BBC. Of course, those who work in BBC News and Current Affairs are already subject to stricter rules around impartiality when using social media. The new guidance recognises the importance of freedom of expression, but says while a programme is on air and for a two-week window before and after the series, presenters on flagship shows must not endorse or attack a political party. They must also not criticise the character of individual politicians in the UK or comment on any issue of political debate during an election period or take up an official role for a campaigning group. Well, to help us through and to try and understand these guidelines, we have a good friend of the podcast, Richard Eyre, who was head of editorial policy at the BBC and a former member of the BBC Trust, among other things, and is now chair of the independent press regulator, Impress. Uh, Welcome, Richard. And um, would you like the job of being the interpreter of these rules the next time there's a row? God forbid. I think the devil is in the detail of almost every sentence of these new guidelines. And although I don't doubt the good intentions of the BBC, it's very hard to see that this is not simply a problem which will re-emerge as individual presenters may try to test the limits of what the BBC has intended, uh, but not necessarily of what the BBC has actually said in its guidelines. Shall I give you some examples, Roger? Please do. Well, you said in your extremely lengthy introduction that presenters would not be allowed to campaign for political parties. Even that's not quite true, because what the words say are, you must not take up an official role in campaigning groups. Now, don't ask me why it doesn't just say you must not campaign for a political party, but it doesn't say that. And if there were, God forbid, if there were a presenter who wanted to test the limits of these new rules, I think they would say, well, of course I can campaign as long as I don't have an official role in a campaigning group. And the other guidelines are littered with similar areas where there will be potential dispute. So this will be a case, this will be decided by case histories, won't they? And, and it will be extraordinarily difficult uh, to, 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 to monitor these. I mean, we should be clear to everybody, there's basically the rules remain the same if you're in news and current affairs, basically shut up. And if you're a very occasional presenter or person, it doesn't really matter as you stay within the law. We're really focusing on this difficult middle area of people who are thought to, in some ways, represent the BBC on air. And the balance, the, the, big, the balance to be found is between freedom of speech and respecting the BBC's impartiality and not damaging the BBC and how you negotiate that. 
In the end, a lot of this will come down to the goodwill of presenters, won't it? Will they actually stand back and say, we respect the BBC enough not to create great difficulties for it, particularly as we run into areas of political controversy? I mean, the BBC is, is basically saying to these presenters, look, please help us, help us here. Don't, don't push it too far. I think you're precisely right, Roger. Uh, if there is goodwill on both sides, then these guidelines may work at least for a while. There hasn't always been a shared understanding on both sides, which is why the BBC's got into uh, a mess in the past. I'll give you another example of the area where uh, these are not clear rules at all. The first one, the first rule for these uh, top-line famous presenters says, do not endorse or attack a political party. It's fair enough. However, it doesn't say you can't either endorse or attack a policy. And if the policy is very closely associated with one political party, let's take at random the example of immigration policy, is very clearly associated with one party and one party alone, Gary Lineker has attacked the immigration policy. Does that constitute attacking a political party? I don't think he would say see it that way, but that's the only rule that the BBC could apply to stop him doing it again. Another one. Do not criticise the character of individual politicians. It's interesting, if you look now on the BBC website, it says that the new guidelines say you must not criticise individual politicians. They don't say that. They say you must not criticise the character of individual politicians. Well, six months ago, Gary Lineker tweeted to say that at least he was better on the field of play than Suella Braverman was at the dispatch box. Now, you might say that's a criticism of the politician. Is it really a criticism of her character? That's what the guidelines prevent. I think Gary Lineker would say, no, it was a criticism of her ability at the dispatch box. So there's endless scope for people who are not of goodwill on either side to argue till kingdom come about these guidelines. Well, a lot of people will remember that, uh, and there were these, I thought, rather wild suggestions that the Director General would have to resign over the initial tweet by Gary Lineker. But nonetheless, it was seen as Gary Lineker versus the BBC. So the big question, I suppose, is if Gary Lineker tweeted exactly what he tweeted the last time, I'll read it to you, would he get away with it under these new rules? He says, and this was re referring to refugees, there is no huge influx. We take far fewer refugees than any other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. And I'm out of order? Now, if he tweeted that today, would he be out of order? Would he contravene these latest guidelines? Roger, I've spent several hours today here in New Broadcasting House, and you won't be surprised to know that I've chatted to a number of the people who've been responsible for writing these guidelines and who will have to interpret them. And their near unanimous view is that these news guidelines would stop Gary saying now what he said six months ago. I take a very different view. I don't think they would, for reasons I've stated. I, I don't think they are remotely clear enough to stop him saying that again. And frankly, you know, Gary is a highly intelligent 
guy, the fact that he's welcomed these guidelines today, the fact that he never apologized or uh, rode back from the things he said six months ago, suggests to me that if he's welcoming the guidelines, he doesn't think they would stop him saying what he's quite proud of having said six months ago. Well, I was very struck by saying that John Hardy was reported as saying today, he is the author, of course, of these guidelines, former ITN senior figure, and he said the guidelines, uh, or he was asked this and confirmed this, uh, the guidelines will give more flexibility to freelance presenters who express a political opinion on social media. And then he was asked, give people like Lineker more flexibility? Yes, said Hardy. I think that's right. Incidentally, uh, Hardy did not draw up the guidelines. I've spoken to him briefly today. He confirms that he was consulted by the BBC as the BBC drew up the guidelines uh, to see whether they matched the tenor of the report that he had written for the BBC, and he confirmed that they did. But they're clearly written by the BBC, and it's not true to say that the BBC has implemented everything that he recommended in his uh, report. Um, and we'll talk about that perhaps in a moment, the things that he d- that haven't been implemented. So he thinks, or appears to think, that the new guidelines will make it easier for presenters to make political comments. I mean, they'll have to be, be careful what they say, but they'll have a greater freedom. I think that is unquestionably the case. You cannot but say that the guidelines are uh, liberal. They are, they are a lowering of the bar for this small number of high-profile presenters. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't say. I think it's probably a realistic thing, and it recognised the environment in which the BBC and all other broadcasters now operate, and the world in which we all live, and in which most of the people whose names you know and see on the box make part of their business out of their social media presence as well as their broadcasting presence. So I'm not saying that a liberalisation is wrong, but that's what it is. And if anybody tries to tell you the BBC has tightened up on the guidelines, I think they're kidding you. And what was not acted upon, do you know, that John Hardy recommended? Is there anything significant that you think the BBC said, no, we won't do that? I think he made one recommendation, which is a rather tedious and mechanical thing, but I understand why he suggested it. He said that these people should be on no more than two-year contracts and that when those contracts were signed, the BBC must make clear to them that if they breach these new guidelines, their contracts will not be renewed at the end of two years. And I think what must have been in his mind is that the BBC in that circumstance, without having to go through a litigious argument in court by severing presenter's contract, they would say to the presenter, we think you've judged the guidelines, we will not renew in two years' time or 18 months' time or six months' time, whenever your two-year contract expires. The BBC has not adopted that for reasons that I think are completely understandable. First of all, the contracts department would be running hot 24 hours a day, having to renegotiate everybody's contracts every two years. But more importantly, the BBC quite legitimately sometimes thinks it has such a hot property that it wants to tie in a presenter and a production company for a period of much longer than two years to make make sure it retains the uh, the rights. I'm sure the BBC, looking back, wishes that it had tied in the rights to Great British Bake Off for 10 years and not for three years. Yeah, and of course, 
uh, rather close to home, a certain Radio 2 quiz show which somehow moved with its presenter across to a commercial channel. But we'll, uh, let's let one pass by. Just briefly, though, on the flagship programmes, the, the ones they've chosen quite a lot from Radio 2 and the presenters, uh, are there any very obvious omissions to you or do you think there are some surprising inclusions? I mean, we've got Zoe Ball on Radio 2, for example, people like that. Any surprises? Well, it's interesting. When I saw the list, I thought, well, why isn't Jeremy Vine on there? And then, of course, I realised that Jeremy Vine will be classed as a journalistic programme, an editorial programme. And so he is covered by the the general prohibition on people who work for news and current affairs in any capacity, not expressing views about public policy in their social media. But I do think inevitably, and you know, the way the world works, and broadcasting is a very competitive place, as we know, there will be a sort of a kudos now attached to the fact that you are designated as presenting a flagship programme. And uh, if somebody is on Radio 2 and doesn't have a flagship programme, they'll probably feel that they're being slighted. And equally, someone who's contracted to present a flagship programme will probably use that in contract negotiations to up their salary. This is a new thing for the BBC. Heretofore, for the last three years since social media guidelines were first adopted by the BBC, they have identified an informal list, which they've ever published, of individual presenters who were so high profile that they risked the BBC's reputation if they tweeted something inappropriate. They've now abandoned that and said, this is not about individuals, this is about programmes. Which programmes are so high profile that the presenters of them at any one time must abide by some stricter rules. That's the idea behind the change. I hope it's effective. I really do hope it's effective, uh, but I wouldn't put my money on it. Well, the Director General must be actually going to prayers every morning that it will be successful. I mean, they've, they've tried to get over any retrospective suggestions, haven't they? They said, no, wait, no, forget the past now. That's all gone. We're going to start from today looking forward. Well, if we look forward, we have a general election which can't be more than 18 months away. We can see the lines being drawn already by both parties. Um, I mean, it just it seems to me it's, it's... Unless a large number of these presenters accept that they should shut up for the next 18 months because they care about the future of the BBC and that they care that the BBC's reputation for impartiality is maintained... Uh, then, uh, then I think we'll have case after case after case. And I wouldn't like to... F I mean, if, if, if a presenter has the contract uh, terminated on this basis and they get a good lawyer, from everything you've been saying and other people are saying, uh, there's no inevitability about the result at all. I think that's right. Let's look on the hopeful side. I think... Uh, I don't know most of these presenters, of course, but I have no reason to doubt that most of them are of goodwill. They've no um, wish to cause the BBC undue embarrassment. These rules could be made to work, but there's so much scope for them not working. I'll give you a ghastly, horrendous example. Let's hope this doesn't happen. Gary continues to tweet in opposition to the government's immigration policy, but he sticks by the new rules. He doesn't criticise the character of Suella Braverman. He just says that her policy is pants. He can go on doing that throughout the run of match of the day. He has to continue to obey that rules for two weeks after match of the day reaches its annual run. After that, 
he can say what he likes. It's none of the BBC's business as long as he's civil. So I reckon if I was Suala Braverman, I would wait for next June and July and watch Gary's tweets with interest. <laughs> so he won't have an off-season. Right. Uh, well, let's. I mean, it's not just the BBC, of course, in the middle of, of the argument about free speech and whatever. We've got GB News, which um, seems almost continually to be in the headlights about this. I mean, we've had, uh, for example, when Russell Brand uh, issue was uh, raised as well as that investigation, we had a presenter, Bev Turner, on GB News saying he was a hero. We've now got a situation where Lawrence Fox, in a conversation, made some, actually, let's be honest, disgusting remarks about... Uh, uh, a woman presenter and so on, and uh, Ofcon are now, we now know, uh, looking into that. Um, and generally, uh, Ofcon have already found against GB News for its lack of impartiality when, for example, it had two Tory members of Parliament interviewing a Conservative Chancellor and not balancing that sufficiently. Um, do you see these as teething pains? Or do you think there's a fundamental principle here which Ofcom has perhaps got to wake up to, which is we don't want to go down the Fox route. We do want to have a wide range of opinion, but we must draw very carefully the parameters under which this debate can take place. And the parameters at the moment are not clear enough. I certainly think that GB News needs to be weaned rather more rapidly than has been the case so far. And... It looks very much as though Ofcom has been indulgent in the first year or two of GB News's existence in the hope, perhaps, that GB News will learn how to apply the rules. I think, oddly enough, GB News is clearly on trial here, but Ofcom is also now on trial. There is a real risk that Ofcom will be seen not to be as effective a regulator in relation to this particular channel, as it has been over the last 20 years, to all the other channels in the UK. And if Ofcom is reluctant to exercise some of its powers, which are very, very considerable powers, in relation to continuing failures by GB News, then I think you've got to ask the question, why would Ofcom be giving this latitude to this one channel. I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's pretty unhealthy for Ofcom that I should even be asking that question. Well, well, I've been told, and I've no, you know, I can't tell you that it's the case, but I've been told that the government very clearly uh, suggested to Ofcom that they would like to see GB News succeed, that they would like to, to be given an opportunity to find its feet, that it would inevitably have teething difficulties, and that Ofcom should be slow, shall we say, to react now i've i don't know that to be the case but i believe it to be the case but we're now getting to a situation where the problems are just mounting day after day after day and gb news is being allowed to operate in a way that no one else is now the problem i suppose with gb news is this if you go to that channel you go you know somebody like lawrence fox is the sort of person you want to go for you know otherwise why are you going to go for that sort of channel if you can't get that sort of opinion that sort of, in many ways, outrageous opinion that you can't get elsewhere in a regulated system. So if you crack down on that hard, maybe GB News can't have a place in the broadcasting environment anyway. It just, you know, won't earn enough. 
Oh, well, it's not earning enough already. It's subsidised, of course, yes, by a very rich man, yes. And presumably that is why at the core of GB News is the wish to create controversy rather than report the news. And the great irony is it calls itself a, a news channel and it's not that at all. I've no, uh, unlike you, Roger, I've no intelligence suggesting that the government uh, leaned on Ofcom to uh, to give GB an easy ride. If that were to happen, and I don't doubt that politicians would be perfectly capable of trying to apply pressure on Ofcom, I would be appalled if Ofcom had said anything other than just keep your distance. We are a regulator and we're independent of, of government. And certainly when I worked at Ofcom 10 years ago, the first two or three chief executives at Ofcom would certainly have said, first to the Labour government and latterly to the uh, coalition government, get off my lawn, we're an independent regulator. I don't know whether Ofcom has the confidence to do that now. We must all hope that it does. Well, we must all hope, but some of us might question it. And the other thing, of course, it's not just important that they investigate, it's that they quick, investigate quickly and publish quickly. And another thing that strikes me is that Ofcom investigations, when they finally started, seem to take a very long time, when the evidence is often very clear. The broadcast is uh, uh, you know, freely available, uh, and judgments could be made relatively quickly. Have you been surprised about how long Ofcom has been taking to make some of their judgments? I have. I should declare an interest here, though. I, I, as you said in your intro, I chair the genuinely independent press regulator called Impress, which was set up after the Leveson review. And when we entertain complaints from people uh, against uh, publishers who are part of our scheme, we would normally aim to resolve an issue in weeks, not months. And it's very unusual for a complaint to take more than three months. That would be really exceptional. However, I do recognize that we have a relatively simple job compared to Ofcom and that any regulator, large or small, has some very clear legal steps to go through that any adjudication can only take place after a full opportunity for complainant and for the uh, publisher, the broadcaster in Ofcom's case, to state their case and then for Ofcom to reach some draft findings and share those draft findings and then entertain further representations from the broadcaster through their lawyers. It's not quick. I'd be amazed if any Ofcom investigation took less than months, but that doesn't mean that there should be an extended period, and sometimes there appears to have been. And finally, can I ask you briefly about the Russell Brand affair? Um, it's quite intriguing to me, looking from the outside, that the to ask the question of why the BBC got itself into that problem with Russell Brand, but also why subsequently, since it did take pretty effective action, I mean, the controller really too got fired effectively or had to stand down together with a senior member of her staff. Why, when the issue has been brought up again, is the BBC and not the Labour Party or the Guardian or a whole raft of people who promoted uh, Russell Brand are not in the dock? It's somehow the BBC. Anyway, let's go back to the first point, though. Were you very surprised by what the, the, the Russell Brand uh, performance was allowed to continue for so long on Radio 2? And what did that say about the BBC at that time? Well, first of all, I've got a, a confession to share with you and 
uh, with the privacy of your uh, audience, I didn't listen to Radio 2 very much when I worked at the BBC. I'm also delighted to say that I had left the BBC staff before Russell Brand came along, and I hadn't become a member of the BBC Trust, the governing body, until after uh, he had been dispatched following the the Andrew Sachs affair. So I've no knowledge of the circumstances around him in particular at the BBC. However, I'm completely clear that in the days when I did work at the BBC, this is the end of the last century, God, it was a long time ago, there was uh, right to the top of the organisation an excessive deference towards star performers, the talent, the talent as they're always called, as though the rest of the staff are a load of drones, the talent were indulged in ways which were outrageous in my day. Not, I have to say, news and current affairs, but in uh, the entertainment part of the business. Nothing was too much for the talent to demand of the BBC, whether it was in the way of uh, fees, of course, but in way of hospitality, of provision of transport, and everybody knew that to be the case. I don't know whether that was still the case in the days of Russell Brand, because I wasn't around, but it wouldn't surprise me. And a bit of that, I think, has still lingered to this day. You see, that one of the fundamental problems, it seems to me, uh, it, it, I, I agree with you, that the, the, the people who can stop this are the controllers or the executive producers. And they haven't been doing that, and they haven't been protecting young people largely. This is across the industry, and particularly young people now on short-term contracts and not protecting them. In the, and the, another thing, of course, which is, creates great difficulty is when the presenter is employed, through, or rather his programmes are produced by his own company. And so any of his producers are working for, are not working, as it were, for the BBC, they're working for the presenter. So the presenter is not only the big figure, on screen he's the big or she figure off screen in these circumstances it's absolutely vital that commissioning editors uh, are right on top of things otherwise you've got almost guaranteed exploitation going on i think that was one of the lessons of the uh, russell brand uh, andrew sachs phone call the bbc did learn the lesson then that uh, you cannot pretend that a presenter does not have editorial control if the presenter owns the production company which employs the producer and editor who theoretically has editorial control. I don't know how rigorously the BBC now applies the principle that if a production company employs as a presenter somebody who's part of the production company, then the executive producer for the BBC takes a hands-on approach. I believe that to be the case, but I'm not uh, an expert at it. It clearly should be the case. Richard, just on the Russell Brand affair, I mean, he obviously was uh, fired by the BBC and uh, so was the control of Radio 2 and one of her senior uh, senior assistants went as well. Uh, but it's the, And Russell Brand was everywhere. I mean, he was interviewed by the leader of the opposition. He had a, you know, he had a chair at The Guardian. He wrote columns. He was everywhere, promoted by everyone. The, the Sun, you know, called him... I, could I say this on our own podcast? Shagger of the Year gave him the award three years in succession. Now, when you know everybody's turning against Russell Brand, and many of us would say not before time, why do you think it's the BBC that's getting blamed for him? Because for sections of the press, not all the press by any means, but by God, quite a lot of the press, 
this is a golden opportunity. The target is not Russell Brand. The target is the British Broadcasting Corporation. I, I could name, you could name, and most of your listeners can name those four or five newspapers whose mission in life, a central political mission, is to end license fee funded broadcasting, sometimes for commercial reasons, because they uh, they have their their own uh, broadcasting organisations, which would benefit from the BBC disappearing off the scene, some for um, ideological reasons. They do not believe in broadcasting ever being financed by what they see as a tax and what, frankly, is a sort of tax, although the BBC doesn't call it that, but it's a licence fee, which is compulsory. It's like a tax. So, any opportunity afforded by an errant presenter to target the BBC for its reckless, irresponsible, outrageous behaviour, even if the reckless, irresponsible, outrageous behaviour is by the individual and not by the BBC, will be an attack the BBC story. BBC just has to live with that, I'm afraid. It's a very sad state of affairs. But the BBC has many, many privileges, not least its funding. One of the consequences of that privilege is it's uh, it's there to be thrown snowballs at by people who would like to bring it down. Well, Richard, it's been a privilege to talk to you, as usual. Uh, and that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be talking to the former BBC Director General, Mark Thompson, who is now going to be the boss of CNN. And many people wonder why in his 60s, having done so much, he'd want to take that on. We'll try and find out. And if you've been enjoying our journalism, please support us. It's less than £2 per month. You can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you'll also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a Good Egg production. Until next time, goodbye.